0: Matthew chapter 3. That's where we'll be at today. Matthew chapter 3. We'll be finishing up where we were at last week. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And I'll go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll jump in together. And look at what God has for us. This is God's Word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Lord, this text is just very challenging, and yet, Lord, it is something like medicine to the soul that we need. So I ask, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, that you would apply this medicine to our souls this morning. Apply it tenderly, apply it thoroughly, and apply it powerfully by your Spirit, we pray. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. I once heard a a story from Tim Keller, and I thought the story was very compelling, and he basically just talked about in the story of a pastor who was um, with another woman other than his wife, and he said it went on for almost 10 years, this affair. And Keller, they were questioning Keller, why why is this? How did this happen? How did this happen? How did this affair happen? And how did it happen 10 years this guy continued to preach? And you know what he said? I thought this was so striking. If you talk to the pastor afterward, after the whole thing became known and whatnot, he said, every Sunday or every Saturday, I committed to tell somebody and repent of it. And then Monday would come, and I would find an excuse not to. For 10 years consecutively, this happened. And, and brothers and sisters, the text we're looking at today, I think, is, is just as much of a warning for me as it is. Actually, it's, it's actually more so of a warning for me, and I think for all ministry leaders, as much as it is for you. And I think there's much to glean from this pastor's example, because what he did is he, he, he was living in a pattern of sin. And rather than addressing it, he had this cycle of continuing to, to justify it and then coming back around and then hating it and then continuing to justify it. And we all know that feeling. We all know that feeling of an area we know we need to get rid of. An area we need, we need to kill this, we need to cut this off. But we say, well, I'll get it next week. And we do this with things in our house too. But even worse, we do it with sin in our lives. Now, J.C. Ryle, I loved what he said when he, said, when he talks of Christ, he says, Christ foresaw that the, two, that the two great plagues of his church upon earth would always be the doctrine of the Pharisees and the doctrine of the Sadducees. And Jesus even says in another place, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Look out for the leaven of the Sadducees. And I love what C.S. Lewis goes on to say. This is, this is worth remembering. He says, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. Now, notice what he's saying there. He says, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they're the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting others, p- other people in the, wrong, in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power of hatred... For the, there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self, and that's what he just described there, the sins of the flesh, and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is worse of the two. Now notice what he says there. He says, the sins of the flesh, all these things, we think they're the worst. And he's saying they're not the worst. He calls them the animal self, and he says they are the animal self and the diabolical self. He says the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig, or just a jerk, who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. And there's much, I think, as, as we approach this text and we hear what Lewis is saying here, I think there's much to be said here. Notice what happens in this text, verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to Him, but, and they were baptized by Him in the river, Jordan confessing their sins. But when He saw the Pharaoh, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to His baptism, He says, you brood of vipers, what are you doing here? And I want you to see today this. This is what I want you to see. If you're taking notes, see it at the top. It's very simple everyone experiences fire. The question is, will you experience the fire of judgment or the, ju- or the fire of purification? This is where our world wants to say there's like a third category. Okay, they want to say, well, I'm, I'm just neutral. This whole Jesus thing, I'm neutral. Impossible. Not, not a biblical category. Everyone experiences fire, The question is, will you experience the fire of judgment or of purification? And I want to contend to you today that I pray, and I pray for us, pray for me, pray for all of us, that we would experience the fire of purification. And so we saw last week, if you remember what we saw last week, we saw John the Baptist preparing the way. He was Elijah preparing the way. Last week we saw him, verses 1 through 6, of him basically saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The the kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore you must turn from your sin and trust the Savior. But now notice what we see happen in verse 7. There's almost a, a different response from another group of people. And his message was that of repentance, but when he sees this group of people, he doesn't say repent, not in the same way. What's he call them? Very satirically, he says, You brood of vipers. You, you literally, you snake babies. I know who you are. You know, and this is so interesting. You can just picture this. All these people who've come to Jerusalem, all these people who have come from Jerusalem, and now the Pharisees roll in, probably all decked out in robes, very religious pe- people. And he says, You snake babies. Who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now notice, I want you to see opposition to the way. If you're taking notes there, opposition to the way. And it's the fire of judgment. Now this is the first encounter we're going to see with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the reason I'm going to spend so much time on it is Matthew is a Jewish book. Very Jewish in nature. He's He's writing this to the Jewish people. And... He wants them to know these religious leaders that they have, they're fakes, and they're frauds, and so th- we're going to see them a lot, <laughs> but I want, to, I want to pay a special attention today so we can identify who they are. So who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees consisted of a group that referred to themselves as the separate ones. They were set apart from the rest of society. They had a strict adherence to the law with a desire to put it into practice. Okay, so that's not bad. Started off pretty well. The Sadducees consisted of a group that was likely descended from the priest Zadok in the Old Testament. Very uh, religious elites in that way. They they um, I'm trying to think had a, a good word to use for it. They were the uh, religious. The, they were the religious. Um, they drank fine wine with their religion in that way. They were, it was, it was a special class of priesthood. But what would lead John the Baptist to call them a brood of vipers? What would lead him to look at this group and say, you're all a bunch of snakes? What would lead him to say that? And I would argue it's hypocrisy. Luke 12, 1 through 3, this is what Jesus says, He says, beware beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which is essentially, just to insert this, it'd be like a covering, covering." hypocrisy comes from the word that we would use in theater where you would put a mask on or you'd cover your face, what you really are. And he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops." These religious teachers were hypocrites. They burdened the people with laws that they themselves did not keep. I love what Jonathan Edwards off-quotes. He says from, uh, who's it from? I'm forgetting who it's from, but Jonathan Edwards quotes it. He says, you Pharisees are so conceited of your own righteousness that you think there's no danger of hell, and you Sadducees think there is none, because the Sadducees didn't believe in hell, or they didn't believe in uh, the hereafter. But I think there's a warning for us as we look at these, these two groups of people because oftentimes I think when, at least in my experience with working, listening to people digest the Bible and myself digesting it, I'll, I'll see them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and I'll think, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not like them. But let me ask you, have you ever, and now there's a difference, and we're gonna talk about this. There's a difference between a person who's just a hypocrite and a people who are hypocritical, okay? I I am hypocritical. Anytime my life does not cohere with what I say, I'm hypocritical, okay? But there's a difference between what they were. All they did was hypocritical. Everything they did was hypocritical. And he says, or maybe you could think, I'll show you how much you're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Have you ever said, I'll pray for you, and didn't actually pray? Have you ever judged others for their judgmental attitudes and actions? Have you ever said, I'll forgive you, but continued telling others how you've been wronged? Have you ever used harsh or unkind words to your family on the way to church, but then been friendly to everyone at church? Have you ever uttered the words, your kingdom come, your will be done, while having no intention of submitting to God in an area of life? brothers and sisters, I want us to see that we are just like these people in many ways. And so before we throw them out with the bathwater, before we say, ah, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, we're not like you at all, I want us to see that there's much more of a temptation in my life, in your life, of becoming like them than the other people. I just want us to consider that. I want us to see that, and I want us to to be warned in that way. And he says in verse 7, notice what he says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So I want you to see the seed of the serpent, that's who he's calling out, and it's the wrath to come. He literally, he literally calls them offspring of snakes. And if you're paying attention to this old conflict we see in Scripture, an offspring of the snakes is a reference to Satan. He's essentially calling them, hey, you're all sons of the devil. You think you're in the line of the seed of the woman, but you're not. You think you're on the right side of the fence, and you're wrong. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, notice what he says there. It says, uh, verse 7, when he says they were coming to his baptism. I want you to see that they were not just coming to observe, they were coming in opposition to his baptism. John was drawing a crowd out here in the wilderness, and they were coming to him in opposition to him. Now, notice some of the things they were saying in verse 9, if you jump down to verse 9. He says, "...and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father." For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So that's some of the things they were saying. They were saying, We have Abraham as our father. We are the spiritual inheritance. We don't need, we don't need to actually walk in obedience. We have Abraham. And Jesus even gets in this same argument in John 8. We see this in another place. Then they they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham did. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. They were arguing in other places that they are the children of Abraham. And because they're the children of Abraham, they, they have some sort of privilege. And Scott, John scathingly warns them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I want you to consider something here. John tells them, hey, you bunch of snake babies, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice what he says there. So what does John mean here by wrath? Who's the wrath from? Who's the wrath for? Well, the wrath, anytime we see wrath in Scripture like this, in reference, as John mentions here, I want us to see that it's the wrath of God towards sin. In Colossians 3, I just want to give you several examples just so you have it in your brain. Colossians 3, 5 through 6 says this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Now notice these, these things are what the wrath's coming for. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now notice that Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on those account of those things, that's, that's why the wrath of God is coming. And it's for these things that God's wrath is coming. Or as Ephesians 5, 5 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. There's a chilling point here for us, brothers and sisters. And the chilling point if we need to keep at the, in the forefront of our minds is as one author said no one avoids God's judgment because of his ancestry. No one is saved by one's parents' faith, nor does a position of a spiritual leader save. Indeed, religious leaders are prone to self-righteousness and moral display common to hypocrisy. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, this is just as much of a warning for me as it is for you as it is for anyone. Nothing. Now, I'll read it one more time. No one avoids God's judgment because of where he came from. No one is saved by his parents' faith, and nor does a position of spiritual leader save You know what this means for us? It means several things. Well, children, I want to talk to you first. Children, what this means for you is that there's nothing, there's nothing about the fact that your parents are Christians that will ensure that you will be a Christian. None of it. None of it has anything to do with what will save you from the wrath of God. This took me many, many years as a child to learn that just because I grew up in a Christian home did not mean that the wrath of God was not going to come for me. I think I subtly as a child, very young, would think, well, my parents are Christians. That's enough. That's good enough. That, that That will save me. And children, I just want you to know that will not save you. The only thing that will save you is Christ. And parents, this has just as much to do with us. Parents, we have one of two choices as parents. We either be a hypocrite where we ask forgiveness from our children when we wrong them. I want to say that one more time. For the people in the back, for myself, looking in the mirror, you have one of two choices, Daniel. Be a hypocrite, or seek your children's forgiveness when you wrong them. Do you know why pastor's kids always get such a bad rap? Have you ever thought about this for a second? That why pastor's kids get such a bad rap? I would argue pastor's kids get such a bad rap because of what Alistair Begg says, when children hear godlessness out of, godliness out of my mouth and they see wickedness in my life, then I point them to heaven and I lead them to hell. I want to say that one more time. When my children hear godliness out of my mouth and they see wickedness in my life, then I point them to heaven while I lead them to hell. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is a deep warning for us. So the answer there is not to say, well, I'll just cover up my whole life. No, the answer is repentance. When the wickedness comes out of my mouth or the wickedness comes out of my life, then I apologize, then I seek forgiveness. So what's needed to save them then from the wrath to come? Notice what he says. He says, verse verse 7 and 8, you brood of vipers who warned you to fl- who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance there it is it's keeping with repentance genuine repentance that will prepare the way of the sa- the savior and what's required of them is sincere repentance and he's urging them bear fruit sincere repentance bear fruit to bear fruit in keeping with repentance means that their repentance should do something. You think about that first example of the pastor who continually lived in adultery for year for 10 years. He continually felt bad. He hated it. He was sorry. He said how, how terrible it was. But you know what he never did? He never cut it off. He never cut it off. There should be fruit coming forth from repentance. I love what John Calvin says. He says, the human heart has so many recesses for vanity or foolishness, so many lurking places for falsehood, is so shrouded with fraud and hypocrisy that it often deceives itself. Brothers and sisters, we need to see this as a warning for us as well. I want you to take, for instance, I'm going to give an example of two men that walk into a bar, both Christians. It's not wrong to walk into a bar. It's not wrong to have a couple of drinks. But both Christians walk in and get drunk, okay? Drunk number one leaves the bar, and upon sinning in this way, several days later, is convicted of his sin and sought to confess it to a brother and sister, a brother and sister, Okay, that's the first one. Drunk number two, same guy, same bar, rather than confessing his sin, continues to hide it until his wife sees the bill. And then she confronts him, and then he says, why? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But this is your fault. You caught me. Which one's repentant? We all know the answer. Drunk number one. Why? Because he, his sin, it's not that, see, here's the difference. The drunk number one saw his sin, convicted of his sin, realized his sin, and did something about it. Drunk number two only responded because someone caught him. That's the difference. There's the difference of genuine repentance. And John warns them, the same thing is true here of these Pharisees. He says in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And it's simply this: judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The tree is coming down. And now there's there's much here. I'm not even going to really get into it. Uh, There's much here in in regard to uh, the nation of Israel, I think, um, but I'm I'm not going to even touch on that. I want you to see, though, that the tree he's in referencing here to is, is the tree of, um, as, as Romans 11 would say, the, the grafting in. As Paul would say, he's cutting off the branch in that way, or cutting off the vine. It's the same kind of cutting off here. Uh, but we could talk about that more if you have questions about that. But I want you to see there's a sense of urgency here. He says, even now, if you've ever cut down a tree, the image is the axe is not just laid at the the root of the tree. The axe is ready to be cut. The swing is back. It's ready to go down. Everyone experiences fire. The question is, will you experience the fire of judgment or of purification? And I want you to feel the weight of this in this moment. That the fire of judgment we don't hear enough but the scriptures are clear. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. But the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the non-Christian will bear the wrath himself. The Christian, notice the way of the Christian though. Matthew 3, 11 says this, I baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John's not just saying, hey, this water isn't enough. This water is not enough. You need something else to come to you. And it's actually the fire of God. The way revealed. That's what this last section is, and this, this is where we're heading. The way revealed. And the way revealed is the Lord Jesus, and it is the fire of purification. Now, notice again what he says there in verse 11. He's, he's contrasting his baptism with Jesus' baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. Basically, he's saying, I got you a little wet. That's not enough. That's never enough. But, he says in verse 11, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I want you to think about this for a second. The, it's the worth of the Son. Jesus says of John the Baptist in Matthew 11 that among these, those women born of women, there's never arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. From the greatest, from, in, from the lips of Jesus, he says the greatest man that's ever lived, do you know what he says of Jesus. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals, the job of the lowliest slave. I'm not worthy to carry. We see the worth of the Son. But it's not just the worth of the Son in who he is. It's the worth of the Son of God in what he does. Notice the difference of the baptism here. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. I got you a little wet, but he who's coming after me is mightier. He's stronger than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And here's the glimmer of hope for us here today. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So I want to handle these last two pieces of what he will do. It's the Holy Spirit and it's regeneration the Holy Spirit, and regeneration. I continually have heard this example, and I think it's just too good not to share. But during the time of the Reformation, if you think about that period of time, the medieval time was a very dark period, and out of the Reformation, you have somebody like Martin Luther. They weren't mad at Martin Luther because he said, we need to reform the church. He did, there were many movements during the time of the Reformation that said, we should purify this church. They weren't mad about that. They're like, of course we need to purify this church. The, cat, the, the priests are doing this. The, uh, there's all, many things to purify. What they were angry at is this doctrine. What the Catholic priests were angry at was this doctrine, which was Regeneration. You need the Spirit. You need an inward change of the heart in order to bring forth fruit. Notice the difference again. I'll draw mine to it again. Verse 11. He says, I baptize you. This is John speaking. I baptize you with water for repentance, which was outward, the use of water to accomplish it. But notice the difference He says, but he who's coming after me is mightier, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What me and you need as a Christian is a new heart. There is no amount of moral reform in ourselves that will change us. I want to say that one more time. If you walk away from this message and you think, well, Daniel, he just wants me to try harder. Nope. That's actually not at all what Daniel said. What Daniel said is you need a change of heart. What Daniel said is you need regeneration from within, transformation that has a quality to it that is of God. That we can say, and notice too, this is for all the people who say, well, the Holy Spirit baptism, that's something we do. What's he say there? Notice what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This isn't you. This isn't telling you, we'll go out of here and pursue Holy Spirit baptism. No, he's going to do it to you. How does he do it? Through his word, through his spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit, and notice the second quality of it. It's fire. It's the fire of purification. The quality of transformation is that of purity and of holiness, And brothers and sisters, I think we so often get this so backward in the church, at least I had it backward for a very long time, that we think that holiness comes from some other source. True holiness is not just a little more of a moral cleanup job. True holiness comes from an inward heart reorientation. Let me show you in another place how this same thing is said, Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since therefore we have been justified or made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved by by him from the wrath of God. I want you to hear that one more time. This is not something you do in yourself, by yourself. This is not another try hard, do better. This is since therefore you have been justified or made right by his blood, then you'll be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled or made right to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though through whom we have now received reconciliation. You will experience fire. The question will be, is it the fire of judgment or is it the fire of purification? And my hope and my prayer is that yours will be the fire of purification, the fire of holiness that comes from within. And it comes when we turn from our sin, when we set our sin down and we cling to the Savior for our justification. We cling to him and trust in him. Now, notice what the result of this transformation will be. Notice what he says in verse 12, 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, the winnowing fork, just as an example, is a harvesting tool. Uh, I'll show you here in just a second. Actually, there should be an image, I think, up there for you, Brandon. give give one more slide, just so we have it there in front of you. Yeah. So the winnowing fork was something that was used basically to lift up or throw the grains of wheat. And so on the right side, you have the actual grain. So it'd be like in our equivalent, I think most of us are familiar with corn. So corn has a husk to it. Uh, This would be the husk. And what do you do with the husk? No one eats the husk, except for like bears and deer and whatnot. No one eats the husk. We throw the husk away. It's the same thing. The kernel is what matters. So the winnowing fork was used. It was picked up and thrown in the air so that all the chaff would be knocked off. He says, verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the result of this is Jesus bringing in the harvest, the great harvest, that is. Now, as I said, the, the wheat the wheat and the chaff, you can go back to that picture. The wheat, typically what happens here with the winnowing fork is the wheat is thrown up in the air and the chaff it breaks off from it and the wind just kind of like blows away the chaff. So there's two elements to this. He says in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. So it's the gathering of the wheat And the nature of the wheat that Jesus will be gathering is not something the wheat itself produces. Notice this. Jesus is coming here to plant the seed of the word so that the harvest of righteousness will grow. And brothers and sisters, when the seed of the word is implanted within us, a harvest of righteousness begins to grow. When the, when the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God begins to work in us, then the harvest of righteousness grows. Now, notice again what they were saying, verse, verse 9. These, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were saying, We have Abraham as our father, verse 9. For I tell you, God is able to from… So that's what they were saying. We, we have Abraham as our father. But he tells them… For I tell you, God is able to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. The mystery, brothers and sisters, and the beauty of this passage is that God did exactly what John the Baptist said. The fact that if you're a Christian and your heart has been transformed, it's that God has spoken and not just said, oh, you're just a little bit better now. He has taken a dead man and gave him a new heart. We're, we're, not, we're not just people who have been cleaned up a little bit. We are people, if you think about the example, we're, we're not just a swimmer who's drowning who needs a little help. We were dead, lifeless at the bottom of the pool, and God swam down, pulled us out, gave us a new heart, and brought us to life again. I love what one commentator said, the God who made Adam from the dust." and brought forth Israel from Sarah's dead womb, could as easily have made Israel from stones. And brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here today, that means that we are those who have from stony hearts been made new as the new covenant promise in the Old Testament says. God would transform the Gentiles' stony hearts with hearts of flesh by placing His Spirit within them. Galatians, and this is not just from Matthew 3, Galatians 3, 6 through 9, says the same thing. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, "'In you shall all the nations be blessed.'" So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are now considered to be sons of Abraham not because of our ethnic background, not because of the home we grew up in, not because we're not like the rest of the pagan world that we live in. Our faith shows that we are sons of Abraham because God has changed our hearts by the Holy Spirit and fire everyone experiences fire. The question is, will you experience the fire of judgment or of purification? So that's the the gathering of the wheat, but there's also another piece. And this is, I would argue, one of the hardest doctrines in all scripture, at least for me it is. It's the destroying of the stubble. The reason why I want to pause here is because this doctrine is typically brushed over the destroying of the burning of the chaff, because it is useless. Malachi 4, 1 says the same thing, like we read this morning. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." And Jesus gives another parable like we read even this morning. He says, The one who sows, Matthew 13, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. This is a very humbling reality. It should be. Because it's not just that the harvest will be collected and they'll shine like suns in his kingdom. It's also that the chaff will be burnt. It's also that the chaff will be destroyed. It's also that the chaff will burn, as the scripture says, with unquenchable fire forever. Jesus is the one who declares the kingdom of God. The good seed, it will be those who are in the kingdom. And the judgment is coming upon the chaff. So the question is, again, to ask. Everyone who experiences fire, everyone experiences fire, the question is, will you experience the fire of judgment or of purification? And I want to remind you, for the fire of purification... This is not something you do in yourself. This is something that God in Jesus Christ has stepped down and done for us. He was the one who who did, as Ephesians says, and he steps down and he bears the wrath of God in our place. And the question is, are you clinging to him today? So I want us to turn now to a time of communion. And the time of communion, brothers and sisters, I think this is the, the height of our service together. It's the height of our service together because we sit and we partake of the body and the blood of Christ poured out for sinners. We declare, along with Matthew today, we are ones who've experienced the fire of purification. Not anything in us. You don't take this cup and drink, you don't take the cup and eat the bread because you are great. You take the cup and you eat the bread because you're clinging to Christ. You take the cup. You, Like John the Baptist, you say, I am unworthy to even take his sandals. It's not about worthiness to come forward. It's about you're worthy because of Christ. So I'm going to ask uh, the deacons of Tony. Tony, I think we need uh, Isaiah. Can you come forward as well to pass out the elements?